Good evening, everyone. I'm Hope Sutton, and on behalf of um, Sisterhood Tikkun Alum Committee, um, welcome to what Ed and Rachie and I are calling the current state of refugee resettlement fireside chat. We have no fire. Um, so, <laughs> there's the flame, yes. Um, we're privileged to have Ed Shapiro with us this evening and Rachie Lewis. And um, Ed is the managing trustee for the Shapiro Foundation, a Boston-based charitable foundation started in 2000 by Ed and his wife, and now focusing on community-based refugee settlement. Um, in 2016, after a 27-year career in investment management, Ed devoted his full-time attention to running the foundation and global philanthropic activities. Um, he serves on many boards, um, and he is involved in many nonprofits, uh, many of them um, involved with um, refugee resettlement. And Rachie Lewis is here to moderate the conversation. Rachie is the director of synagogue organizing at the Boston Jewish Community Relations Council. And we're so lucky to have both of them speaking with us tonight. Um, if any of you who are at home would like to have any questions answered, you can send them to my email, hsutton, that's h-s-u-t-t-i-n at gmail.com, and we will try to get those questions answered. Um, so Ed and Rachie, welcome, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say about the current state of the um, resettlement um, situation. Thanks so much, Hope. Um, it's so nice to be with everybody tonight and to be with you, Ed. Um, I just also want to add to, to Hope's introduction of Ed. Um, through my work at JCRC, I've been able to work pretty closely with Ed on a variety, a variety of immigrant solidarity, refugee uh, resettlement efforts. And Ed and the foundation not only support this work in, in very many expected ways, but Ed is always very deeply involved in the strategy um, and has really shaped the work of refugee resettlement um, in the US and globally. Um, and it's really a blessing that we have you here with us in Boston to get to help shape the local work here. Um, so I'm very grateful to get to work with you. Um, and I'm grateful to get to learn more about um, the situation in Ukraine, which I know you know uh, a lot about. Um, and it's an ever-changing landscape right now. I know you got back from your fourth trip in the past six months to Eastern Europe recently. You were also in DC today. We can talk about that later. Um, but I'm wondering if you can just start us off by laying the groundwork for what is happening right now in Ukraine and knowing that we're heading into um, the, the cold of winter, um, what, what, is, what is sort of unfolding there? Yeah, happy to. Thank you, Rachie, and thank you, Hope. And let me just say also, it has been an incredible honor and privilege to work with Rachie to be able to talk as I did today in Washington and as I do around the world about this amazing community um, at my synagogue at Temple Beth Elohim and across the greater Boston community. I have this incredible partner here who is able to go speak to all of you, all of the other synagogues around greater Boston and just see the kind of response, the kind of interest. We started this work six years ago with Syrians. We continued it after an understandable four year pause. 
um, with Afghans last year, and now in a major way with Ukrainians, and as we'll talk about later, you know, Venezuelans and other populations that are following. So it's an amazing partnership, and uh, we couldn't do it without you. Um, there's only so many hours in the day, and so to have you as a partner and be able to recruit and inspire so many is a, is a great privilege. Um, so I'm, I'm, of course, not an expert in military or political issues, and honestly, I don't think anyone really knows. Watching what's happened over the last eight months, we were all warned, the world was warned sort of in the weeks leading up to February 24th. Um, I remember during the Olympics, people speculating when would it happen, would it happen? I think it was sort of um, a lot of our wishful thinking that it wouldn't actually happen. It seemed so um, unimaginable in today's day and age that there would be this kind of unprovoked attack on a friendly country. Um, and, and then as it started on February 24th, there were a number of scenarios, but I don't recall anyone thinking that there was a scenario where there would be the kind of unified resistance, the world coming together with President Zelensky's leadership, and that eight months later, we'd be talking about not only ongoing war, but really a, um, a, um, a retreat um, and a desperation which could lead to you know, a range of results to, from the unimaginable, given that we're talking about a nuclear power, um, to what we've seen over the last two weeks, the sort of spot unprovoked civilian attacks across the country on, on heating and electricity facilities and, and just trying to spark chaos to, to maybe some kind of withdrawal. Um, that's the hopeful answer. But from my perspective, all we know is that this is continuing, that over the last eight months, Approximately 8 million Ukrainians um, have left the country. M more have left and some have come back, but estimates are that about 8 million out of a population of just over 40 million, so 20% of the country has left. Um, the majority of those are in bordering countries in Eastern Europe, um, but a significant number, millions, have now made their way all across Europe and lesser numbers, but significant, hundreds of thousands now, have made their way to the UK, Canada, and the US under various sponsorship programs. So the world is responding, um, ordinary citizens, um, governments, governments that are, have always been very welcoming and progressive like Canada, and honestly governments that have not been particularly welcoming, such as Hungary or Poland, and the, all, all of the EU and citizens everywhere are opening up their doors. I think it shows you know, the, the power of a common enemy um, and what we're all seeing on the news, what we've seen for the last eight months, the kind of unprovoked attack on, on, on civilians, and people are responding. And from my perspective, that is, I, I hate to hesitate to even use the word, but it's an opportunity. It is a way when we have the combination of a large number of very sympathetic population, these are almost entirely women and children. Um, men, generally 18 to 60, are not permitted to leave. They're, they're, they're either fighting or supporting the, the, the government. Um, and, and every country is opening their doors in amazing ways. You hear stories about you know, Polish people housing multiple families for now you know, six, seven, eight months. Um, we'll talk about you know, what I think that means next. But the reality is, even before these latest attacks, um, the responses to the Crimea Bridge in the last two weeks, my sense from all of our partners over there are we're bracing for another significant wave with winter coming. 
you know, all kinds of challenges. The economy the, has dropped like 60%. Um, there's, there's not hope, depending on where they are. In Eastern Europe, they were under active attack. In Western Europe, they were worried about it. So they were bracing for another pretty significant wave. And I think what we've seen in the last two weeks suggests that's even more likely. People who were in the relative safety of Kyiv or Lviv and cities in the West now can't feel that safe. And so either those that haven't left yet or have left and come back, we think are also gonna leave if in fact there's some place they can go that's safe. Um, there are so many layers to this humanitarian crisis and yeah, just wondering what the Shapiro Foundation is focused on and why, given all of the different places that intervention and support is needed. Yeah, and obviously there's not a right or wrong answer. I mean, something this magnitude, the entire country being under attack, there are essentially unlimited needs. There's mili military, military needs that, thankfully, NATO countries, the U.S., are responding to. Um, President Zelensky asks, you know, every day for more, 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 and um, there's been a pretty significant, unprecedented response. There's a humanitarian need um, inside Ukraine, certainly. Um, a significant percentage, almost as many as 8 million that I said have fled. There's another 6 to 7 million that are still inside Ukraine, but internally displaced. So in another city, in another home, have moved inside the country. They have significant needs, again, in, a, in not a super rich country to start with, and their economy being completely destroyed. And cities like Lviv, that have seen this massive influx of, of Ukrainians, probably with relatives and others, so they need help. Our focus, because it's what we have done, is around what I'll broadly call sponsorship. The, the ordinary citizens of the world coming to support those fleeing their country. And so whether that's in neighboring countries like Moldova or Poland, you know, less advanced, more advanced, across Europe, how can we support the ordinary citizens what do they need? In some cases, it might be funding, but mostly it's about training, matching, transportation. Like, what are the pieces? That's what we've been doing for the last six years together um, with Syrians, with Afghans. And I feel like the combination of learning through that process, how we might be able to help, in some cases, having existing partners who are really well equipped to, I think, offer the kind of sponsorship-based support, there's some differences, right? The, the, the process that we've been going through with, with, with Syrians where they're we're preparing in advance of their arrival and, and matching them with sponsors like we're now doing in, in the US and the UK. Other countries, principally in Europe, are allowing them to arrive without sponsors, without even visas. Um, and so you're seeing this massive inflow, millions, that are living in all of these cities. And so what we're trying to figure out is, okay, this isn't about creating a pathway, they're already there. What kind of support do they need? And so what we're trying to do in really every country, and, and that ranges from Eastern Europe to Western Europe. In fact, we have a common partner who um, we've done a project with in Japan, of all places. Japan, who's never responded like in history this way, has, has created a Ukrainian pathway. Any Ukrainian can go to Japan, they've welcomed 1,400 so far. Um, these cities are opening their doors, they get work permits, they get access to education. So, so my view is any country that has, is welcoming Ukrainians that wants our help, and we can figure out who we partner with in those cases to provide the kind of support they need. You know, in, in Poland, we don't have a, a, an expertise in terms of the network of providers or even the employers, but what we've been able to do there is focus on um, childcare, recognizing that the longer this goes on, we're going to need to provide some kind of path 
for these women, these families to move out of you know, strangers' homes. My wife and I joke that, you know, we sort of have a four-day limit for guests. Um, those are guests we like. And these are strangers um, that have been there eight months in some cases. So it's not sustainable. But thankfully, there actually are job needs. There's economic growth in Poland. They have some of the same challenges we do in terms of aging population, um, low birth rates. And so in some ways, what we're trying to do is embrace these refugees as um, critically needed. Um, it's, it's humanitarian based support, but they can quickly become providers, contributors to their economies. And so what we figured out is the biggest need there is early childcare. The, the schools, we heard stories in, in elementary schools, high schools, you know, in some cities, 15, 20% kind of overnight population increases, that's a challenge. But if you have children under six, there's nothing. You know, like in the US, there's not kind of widespread childcare. And in order for the women with young children to have a shot of going to work and getting independent housing, they need daycare. So we have a, a partner that we're working with. They've opened or they have funding now to open 100 daycare centers in seven different cities in Poland. We were visiting them, visiting the child care centers last week. And so, okay, we had this goal. We've been working all summer. They're almost there. Now what? Let's do 100 more. I mean, the reality is the need is so significant and it's scalable. And so that's one example of somewhere where we have some experience. We have a joint partner, in this case, UNICEF is working with us, where we work, who we work with around the globe. And they've come in and found them as a partner. And we're working together to help fund them and grow. That's really quite the global perspective that, that you've given us. Um, and inside of that is also um, the program United for Ukraine. Um, and ways for people in the US and communities here in Massachusetts and Boston um, to be able to get involved and support people who are seeking refuge. And I know you played a significant role in getting United for Ukraine off the ground. So can you just dig a little bit more into what's happening in the US um, and yeah, the ways that you've been involved in that? Sure, so, so if you remember back in, in, right when the war started, you know, late February, early March, there was this, you know, 100,000 a day were fleeing. You saw the stories at the borders in every direction, people panicking, not knowing, um, understandably, what was going to happen. And, and countries, particularly in Europe, opening up their doors. The United States was a bit slow, um, and I guess in some ways understandable. We didn't know how long this was gonna last, and it was true that the vast majority were saying, we wanna stay close to home. These are, the unique aspect of this is that they're separating families. Men are staying home, and women and children have the opportunity to leave. And so understandably, they wanna get out of harm's way, but at least especially in the early days, they didn't necessarily want to go across an ocean, let alone across a continent. And they, so you were seeing really large numbers, the vast majority in kind of the four or five bordering countries, Poland, Moldova, Romania, uh, Hungary, and Slovakia. And only as that continued was there more, more and more of a think of a, of a realization that this could very well be protracted. And it took um, the president, President Biden, a month to basically say, okay, we will play some role. At first it was, nope, they don't want to come. We don't have to play a role in that. And I'll never, I was actually walking down, walking in Times Square and looked up and saw in one of those giant built tick ticker tape that said, President Biden announces the US will take 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. And I grabbed my phone, what does this mean? And the voice was, he made an announcement somewhere without kind of knowing. Some were coming through this interesting pathway, tens of thousands actually were coming through Mexico. Um, they sort of figured out word spread in social media that you could go to Mexico without a visa. 
and then travel from Mexico City to Tijuana, you're allowed to cross the border and then end up um, across the US. Pre presumably those are, were people of means or had family members in the US, um, but you know, the government quickly realized like that wasn't a sustainable way to do this and there are all kinds of equity issues. Why are Ukrainians being let in when Venezuelans and, and um, uh, Haitians and, and, and Cubans and um, Hondurans were not? So they basically announced um, on March 24th that within a month, um, the US would announce some kind of program um, and that's where I spent time with people that I developed these relationships with in the administration to help provide some in, in, um, input in terms of how a sponsorship program could work. Not, not so much legally, that's not my expertise. Other people would figure that out. But the idea that we could have a program that Americans could get involved with, could support. And so on April 24th, um, the president announced that Uniting for Ukraine, a new sponsorship program, it was built on a version of the program that they announced the prior year implemented for Afghans. Um, you may recall the, the horrific scenes in Kabul in August of last year um, when we had basically 14, 15 days um, before the Taliban completely took over where we had an opportunity to evacuate as many um, of our important allies as possible. We ended up getting 77,000 out. Rachi and maybe Temple Emanuel um, yeah, had just this incredible response. Again, this is an opportunity a little bit different. This wasn't a sponsorship where a sponsor could name and be matched with an individual. The government, in this case, decided who was prioritized, who got here, and which cities they were going to go to. And as they were coming here, coming to 145 different cities across the country, organizations were stepping up to help sponsor them. It was done sort of professionally because it had to be done quickly. There were eight military bases stood up kind of overnight and from my perspective miraculously. When I, when I first read the plan, I thought someone must not be sane. How, how could we have refugee camps in the United States, let alone within weeks? But a lesson for me was I, I think about the government as being slow and bureaucratic um, and private sector being more rapid. What we saw here is the differences when the military is involved things happen really quickly. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, there are 51,000 beds being set up and staffed um, with proper supplies and everything else across the United States, and we were able to get these 77,000 out. The, the legal pathway that was used was is called humanitarian parole. It was, a, it was a creative use of a pathway that didn't require congressional approval. It doesn't result in a long-term solution. You don't come like a refugee does with a green card and a path to citizenship, it's a two-year program. But in an emergency like this, they were able to creatively use that platform. That's what they ended up doing in United for Ukraine, but instead of it being a top-down, the government chooses who's gonna come and who's not, this allowed ordinary Americans to choose. Anyone can do this. The only, there's basically two eligibility, well, three eligibility criteria. You have to be over 18 or with a, a parent, you have, to be, you have to have been living in Ukraine on February 11th. They sort of picked a day a couple weeks before the war because I, th I think because they didn't want to um, uh, bias people who were we told to leave and they left, if they left a week before, um, they would be eligible. But if you were a Ukrainian living in Poland for a year or two, you're not eligible um, and you can't have a, a, a criminal record. So it opened up the eligibility, in theory, to the whole country, to all the citizens. Men, as I said, though, are not eligible, not because of the U.S., but because um, Ukraine 
is restricting their movement. So a bench, a, a basically half the country, or a little more, are eligible for this, whether they're still in Ukraine, which was an interesting element to me, because we've never seen that before. You, you couldn't sponsor, you couldn't help a refugee directly in a, in a, in a war-torn country. You have to, to, to technically be a refugee, you have to cross a border, leave your country um, for valid fear for your life, along with other tests. In this case, technically, you're not a refugee if you're still in Ukraine. But this sponsorship program, which isn't technically refugees, meant that they're eligible. So it allowed us to find um, families inside Ukraine. Now, they do have to leave and cross the border, not for legal reasons, but for practical reasons that there's no flights. There's no commercial flights into Ukraine. So we've established partnerships where we were able to get help in, in Warsaw, in Krakow, in Budapest, to, depending on where they were in the country, to get them support couple nights in a hotel, and then get support, and then get sponsored and come to, across the US. So this program was launched at the end of April. Um, as of last Friday, there, are, there have been 140,000 applications filed. The applications are two-sided. You, you can only be a sponsor and apply if you have a named, identified Ukrainian. So you either know someone or you're matched somehow. With some of our partners are providing that service. If you, if you don't happen to have a particular family you want to sponsor, but you still want to do this, we can match you with them, or you can be matched. And so about 140,000 have applied, um, 110,000 have been approved. Um, they're approving them with, I don't think I'm allowed to say, a very, very high percentage, um, and really quickly, um, like within days. So yes. and who, who is filling out the application? Is it the sponsor or the Ukrainian families? The, the sponsor fills out the application with information about both you, the sponsor, and there's like a dozen pieces of factual information about the Ukrainian. Their, their passport number, their address, their maiden name, there's sort of a list of things that you can get in advance. Or you sit, what we did the first time is saved our half, went and asked for that information, and then filled in the second half. But then you submit it on a one-for-one -one basis. So if it's a family of three, you actually technically fill out three different applications, um, including the children. Um, and then, so how, do you, how, do you, how are you paired? Like, if you, like, zip through that. How, so, if, if we want to sponsor somebody, how would that work? So, so two ways. Either you know someone Th through your network, through a, a Ukrainian diaspora. If you know someone, a Ukrainian. Exactly. And like for, for in our example, um, the first one we sponsored. One of my daughter's classmates, my daughter's at Bates College in Maine, and right after the war, she sent me a, a screenshot of her, her friends, who's a Ukrainian freshman, was a freshman, um, who was posted, oh my god, war broke out, I'm so worried about my parents, I haven't slept in days, and literally, the day I was coming back from Washington, right after the program was announced on April 26th, she sent us another post from him and said, I don't know if you, everyone's heard, but there's a new sponsorship program called Uniting for Ukraine, where Americans can sponsor Ukrainians. Does anyone know anything about this? Can anyone help? Getting emotional talking about it. And I immediately said to my daughter, like, if you want us to do this, this, I just, I was literally in flight back from Washington six months ago today um, when this, we got this post. And she said, yes, absolutely. I texted him. My wife and I FaceTimed with him the next morning. We filled out the application online. There were some things we didn't know the answer to. It says, you know, 
what is the beneficiary's assets? How much? So we're texting, she says, I don't know, I think she brought some cash. And we asked, she, he asked, texted her and said, she has, has $10,000. And it says, upload a copy of the bank statement. She doesn't have a bank statement. She fled in the middle of the night and went to Hungary. So I said, I don't know what to do. And I said, this is all I could imagine. Ask her to spread the $100 bills out on the table, take a picture, and I submitted that as part of the application. That's all I could do, proof. Um, and so in this case, we, had a con we didn't know her, we didn't know him, but we had a, a second-hand, third-hand connection. Others that we've heard about in the community, there are Ukrainians here, there are people married to Ukrainians or have family, so there's sort of that direct connection, or we can help you do that. There are, my, my estimate, kind of made up, but based on a few surveys and other things, there are at least five million Ukrainian women, and their, plus their children, who would be interested in coming to the United States and being sponsored if they got paired with a sponsor. So we have a number of partners who are doing that. I hate to use this, but it's like a dating app. You can go on, if you're Ukrainian, you say, I wanna be sponsored, and you upload your information. If you're an American prospective sponsor, you can read about this, and you put in your information, and then there's a matching, and says, oh, like you would with a, a, a first date or a roommate. You know, what are the few questions? How many children do you have? Where would you wanna go? And then they get connected, and if they decide to do it, they submit this application, and it gets approved at a high rate. Um, besides the... Can people hear the questions on the live stream? Do we know? I, I don't think so, no. Do you want to use this? I can either repeat the or question you, you or... Can or you want to do that? Uh, and we'll share? They can't hear me on the phone because it's okay. off. Great. Go ahead. Why don't you take the mic and then Rachel and I will share. Okay. And I share, right? Besides the sponsorships, my question is regarding volunteers. So for people that like to travel and helping, like you mentioned, Japan or something. So if we have opportunities here to help and we're traveling, could you kind of comment on how we could help as volunteers abroad for countries that are really opening up that haven't before? I'm happy to take that question. Thank you know, you. Um, so many people at Temple Emanuel have been involved in different efforts in the past with Syrians, with the Afghan families, with other families, even some uh, for a Ukrainian family that's been connected to Temple Emanuel. And they, the, the sponsorship group is more of a team than it is a single person. And so I think if somebody's traveling, um, if you're able to actually like, create a team and not just be one set sponsor as like an individual or as an individual household, then you're able to really fill in the gaps for each other. Um, and if, it's, if you end up like hosting someone in your home, then you have other people who are on your team uh, continue to be a part of that, that support team when you're away. Um, but I think the primary idea around sponsorship um, is that there's some, it's definitely like one or two people who take on a lot of that as a sponsor, but you also create a team um, that really is able to support each other and take on that as shared work. And there are lots of people at Temple Emanuel who have done versions of that in the past and others throughout the Boston what, community. What, were you asking about opportunities for volunteering abroad. in Poland? Abroad, so abroad. I don't think I answered my question. While you're sponsoring here and your team is taking over for you and you decide you want to go to yeah, Krakow. Yeah, opportunities to um, go that, to Japan or something. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the short answer is yes. Where and how and who? is a question. What I would suggest is that the most organized effort to um, uh, match 
interested volunteers is at the Jewish Community Center in Krakow, where we've visited multiple times. They're doing an absolutely amazing, incredible job serving thousands of Ukrainians every day in a bunch of different ways. And I've now been there twice. And I've seen volunteer, and I meet people from all around the country packing bags and groceries. And so I think there are opportunities, particularly there, but maybe elsewhere. Yeah, we, um, yes. My husband and I and son, we participated in the Rise of the Living this summer. So oh, really? In, in Krakow. And knowing very well that the money that we raised is going to support the, the, the JCC. And, you know, the, you know, we know Jonathan Ornstein, and he's a terrific guy. And feel, you know, with all these different organizations that did pop up once the war broke out, I have to say that we, you know, immediately directed our money to the JCC because we knew that they were like front and center in terms of all the refugees that were fleeing. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And the more time I spend with the team there, the more impressed I am and the way they're embracing this. I, they tried to get me to do the Ride for the Living this year. I promised to do it next year. I went a few weeks oh, after because I couldn't do it. but. Um, you know, I've been hearing about them for years. Yeah. My wife went with an, on an Aharai trip and visited there 10 years ago. I see their newsletters and all of a sudden, like no one expected this, right? right. And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. tens of thousands are coming into the city and the JCC and Jonathan was basically, because I've asked them like, you're, you're not a relief, re refugee relief. You're supporting the, the, the small Jewish community and the survivors in Krakow. How did you sort of do this? And like, I first thought, oh, it must be they're supporting Jewish, Ukrainian refugees, of which there's a small number. No, like yes, day one, it has JCC in the name, so, so word spread, but once people realized that it did not matter, and, and that's really important to me, to my wife, and everything we do, um, you know, Hyas has become a, you know, is a, is a very important partner for us, ha has a sort of tagline that I steal all the time, which is, if you know Hyas, was the, was the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society for 110 years, their entire job was resettling Jewish refugees starting in the 1880s in New York. And then, you know, 20 years or so ago, they sort of realized there's not that many Jewish refugees anymore. So what do we do? Do we pack up our bags and say, okay, good? Or do we say, we need to be around in case there's a need? And we have expertise developed over 100 years. And, and the line that Mark Hetfield uses in I Steal is, we used to help people because they were Jewish. Now we help people because we are Jewish. And that sort of really resonates with me, and, and the JCC embodies that. Like, there's a Jewish community that has expanded to come there. They've hired like 40 Ukrainians there in this center to support anyone who needs food, shelter. Um, there's a hundred things they're doing. And so one of the things, again, I saw was that embracing of volunteers. I'm sure there's others. I was in Warsaw last week and saw some efforts at, um, at these centers that are housing thousands of Ukrainians that need help and I'm sure need volunteers, but I think that's probably, especially with the JCC network and our connections with CJP, that's probably the best place I can help. So anyway, so back to so, so sponsorship. So this program is launched, it's ramped up um, 70, well, as of last Friday, 68,000 have arrived um, across the country and every week now for another 4,000 are arriving. Um, and based on some of the work we're doing, now, with other sponsor mobilization efforts across the country, I think that's going to continue um, and hopefully even increase. And we have strong support from the government. And what we saw last week, um, to my surprise, honestly, was they're already declaring this such a success 
that they've replicated it, and they're using this humanitarian parole sponsorship program again for Venezuelans. And so there is an opportunity that this persists because unfortunately we know there's going to be more wars, there's going to be more conflicts. We don't know where and when, but if we can develop a system, much like Canada did 40 years ago, and the US didn't. They basically professionalized all of resettlement and very limited formal opportunities for ordinary citizens to get involved. That was a huge surprise to me. Um, we got involved seven years ago after Syria happened. Like, what do you mean Americans can't do this? We sort of pushed our way in and figured out how to do this with Rachie's help and um, with JFS Metro West, and we were able to support um, eight, sponsor eight Syrian families before um, we had a president who stopped allowing that. Um, so it, it is this opportunity, and we need it to succeed. We need to make sure that there are not homeless Ukrainians on the streets. Um, we need to make sure that the sponsors, the, the, the downside to this program, if there is one, is that it's, it's not regulated, really. They, they do a quick criminal background check on the sponsor to make sure you're not on some felony database, but they don't know a lot about it. And the, the inevitability is when you do that, there's gonna be some bad things that'll happen. Um, some people would say, don't do it at all. Mm -hmm. And my view is, you, one of my other cliches, right? You can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. And I saw firsthand in March, right after the war started, what was happening at the border in Moldova. And I thought, how can America not do anything? And we're doing a program that, again, allows anyone to do this very quickly, but it comes with some risk. And we need to be careful about um, dealing with those inevitable bad situations in order to support those that who really do want to do it and want to do good. Mm -hmm. Ed, one of the other things that I'm thinking about is that um, through the work that we've done together and also through some of what you were telling Hope and I about before, you also work to leverage other resources that are able to be there for Ukrainians, for other refugees um, who are here. I'm thinking about housing, I'm thinking about employment. And so can you just tell us about some of the other ways that, that you are working to build in other kinds of resources and other kinds of landing points for people when they get here? Yeah, you know, I, I would say, Rachie, you know, when, when I first started getting involved and interested in this in 2015, I, I traveled to Jordan, I traveled to Greece, I just wanted to see, you know, how it is that millions of people, um, Syrians, were fleeing and understand the situation where large numbers were, like in, in Jordan and um, Lebanon and Turkey, you know, a, a total of like over 10 million, well, 5 million Syrians came in a relatively short period of time to those three countries. In the case of, say, Lebanon, it was a 25% increase in their country. They went from 4 million to 5 million. That is not something that can be absorbed by an economy, an advanced economy. That's equivalent to the United States taking 85 million new refugees in like a month, right, just to put it in context. And we're a rich country, Jordan, Lebanon, or not. So I came back a little bit thinking, what are the opportunities if you can do this with advanced countries in relatively small, absorbable size, where we can turn this into win-wins. Mm -hmm. The fact is, we have an aging, the, well, every Western country has a challenge. Um, we have an aging population, and we have a low birth rate that's not replacing them, and that ratio of workers to retirees is a huge challenge that can't be fixed. I mean, in theory, you could fix it um, by 
putting in policies that will increase the birth rate, first of all, it's never worked. And even if it did, by definition, it takes you know, 18 years or 18 years and nine months to be able to produce organically. So how do you solve that? The answer to me is, is broadly immigration, right? In, in, in less developed countries, there are hundreds of millions of people who aren't working, who want to be working, who want to be supporting their families. That's the message I heard when I sat with them in, in camps in Jordan. What do you want? A, they would love to go back to their own country, but they realize that's not realistic. The second is they want to be allowed to work. They don't want to sit around taking handouts and waiting in line for food. And here we have our country, all of Europe, Canada, Japan, China, um, that desperately need workers. So how do we turn this into a win-win? How do we create acceptable pathways that create economic value? That, that is kind of my bias, maybe coming from the business world, to say we could try to encourage governments to do more on their the humanitarian basis, but there's always going to be a limit. Well, there doesn't need to be a limit if they become net contributors. And in fact, we're in an environment right now we've never had. There's over 10 million vacant jobs. Uh, you know, Two years ago, after COVID, I thought, I can't really make that argument anymore, that what we need is to bring in more <coughs> unemployed workers and add to the, whatever we had, 30 million unemployed. But now, given how quickly we've recovered, it is a huge problem. It's a challenge for our economy. Um, I'm not an expert in this, but if you read about hospitals, the Boston hospitals in particular, but everywhere, are facing massive existential threats because they cannot hire enough nurses. They're paying triple overtime, they're paying recruiting fees, traveling nurses, and they still are reducing hours and having longer stays, losing hundreds of millions of dollars. And so that example is, can we solve that? Can we bring them a pool of qualified, matched, employees, they could be British for all that they care, but they happen to be ones that are anxious to leave. They may be nurses or were nurses in Ukraine or now they're in Poland. They can come here. They can be matched with employers who need them. And if we do all that right, that in my mind is how this becomes a virtuous circle, that we can add more and more capacity because it's not a burden. It will be an investment up front in them, but if they have jobs, it'll be a relatively quick payback, and there'll be what I'll call a side benefit of, and we've seen this with the families we've sponsored, their kids not only are safe, but they're getting an education, an American education. You know, it was a little bit, uh, I'll admit this, you know, feeling a little bit ignorant, but in talking to some of the Ukrainian families and asking about their situation and answering the question, do, do, are there really a lot of Ukrainians who want to come? They separate from their husbands, cross an ocean, and when I asked Olha, my um, daughter's classmate's mother, about this, she looked at me like, like it was the stupidest question she ever heard. I'm like, do you have more people who would want to come? And she said, what you don't understand is every Ukrainian, our whole lives, our dream someday is to go to the United States. And we just knew that wasn't possible. There wasn't a pathway. Then a war happens, and now there's a sponsorship program, and we get to come to the United States. Um, and that's been confirmed with surveys and other things that we've done to suggest there's no shortage of demand for it. And because we're in this environment, at least today, where there's a massive need for the jobs, that's kind of my focus. It, it's not at the expense of the humanitarian piece, it, but it's being pragmatic and saying we get to do both. And if we can have this win-win and use this pathway that our government has set up, we can do that in big numbers. 
Um, thank you, Ed. And uh, wondering if other people are interested in asking other questions on your mind. Just logistically um, and, and anecdotally, the people who are coming in, are they given um, the ability, they're given the ability to work right away? Uh, almost right away. They, almost they are, right away. They're automatically eligible and there is now an expedited process online with the goal, we haven't quite reached this yet, but with the goal of getting that authorization within 30 days of arrival. So very and, quick. And the, um, the people who are coming, are they, t are they taking the jobs that our society needs filled? That's, an, that's another question. And then another question, the, these are just the things that keep that I'm um, like, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, um, this is a very different situation, immigration situation, because all the husbands are still there. So it's also temper, you know, how are people looking at it? Yeah. Is it temporary? Is it, you know, for as long as the war happens, hoping they can then stay here? Will our government make good on that once they're, you know, so, All great questions that we can't answer. In fact, I was, I was speculating with my, my government colleagues over lunch today about that. And we're all sort of saying, okay, let's play out scenarios. The war ends. It doesn't, there's no sign of it, but war, all wars end eventually. And when that happens, what do we think is realistic about those that have come? However many were successful, hundreds of thousands. My assumption is that some percentage, maybe a significant percentage, will choose to go back. And I look at that as, that's okay. We as, a, as an economy, as a country, as a people, provided support at the time they needed it most when their country was under attack. And we're not, of course, gonna prevent them from going back. Having said that, my hope is that, especially if we're successful and they are happy and they wanna be here, that we will offer them an extended path to stay, number one, and number two, again, speculating, we will also offer a path for their husbands, fathers, to come join them. Now, there may be political issues around that. The country's decimated and it's gonna have to be rebuilt for 20 years. You don't wanna have the, the brain drain, but my assumption is for a select group who've gotten jobs and they can say we're now teachers and nurses and, and they wanna stay, that will provide, and it, it's an interesting, kind of reverse narrative than history. History is immigration. Men typically go first, get a job, don't know yet that it's safe or appropriate for their kids, save up some money, and when the opportunity arises, they bring their wife and children to join them. This is kind of the reverse. It's, it's the women who are protecting their children, presumably with their husband's blessing and support, getting the jobs, saving some money, learning English, and then bringing their husbands over that, that's a dream and it requires the war to end. It requires um, us to have a, a president who would be supportive of such a policy. All, all we know now is that we have just under 27 months of the current president, not that I'm counting. Um, so for the next three months, the next two and a half months, anyone who gets to their two year parole period was what it's called, least knows who the president will be. After that, we don't know that. But, but it's a great question and, and 
what I basically decided is it doesn't matter. It'll matter later, but right now we're providing something that, that we need and they need. In terms of the job piece, um, the reality is there are massive job vacancies. And so in theory, um, an employer could say, I'll hire a Ukrainian and fire an American because I, for whatever reason, prefer them. I don't think in this tight job market that's the real risk. It is filling needs. And the reality is we don't know yet how many of those vacant jobs. You sometimes need certification. You might need to be fluent in English. You might need to have degrees, experience. So, and some jobs, you know, construction or others, truck driving, they may not be suitable. What's interesting to me is if we now add Venezuelans to the mix, we're going to have Spanish speakers, a mix of men and women. So we have, from a pure kind of uh, employer perspective, a more diverse group um, to be able to match with, with whatever jobs. But w our focus is around, on the, on the labor front, is around teachers and nurses and healthcare jobs where they're critically needed and have this sort of added benefit of serving Americans. Like we have a program we're launching next week for um, bringing in um, daycare, childcare, teachers that are in desperate short supply. Companies are not able to bring back all of their employees because there's not daycare available. There aren't enough teachers. So if we can bring in Ukrainian teachers to help expand the, the company's childcare centers, then there's this extra win-win of allowing American to come back to work because they have a safe place to go for their children. Same with healthcare, obviously. Nurses providing care to Americans um, has an added benefit in my mind on that narrative. Question behind. What will happen if the uh, Senate turns over in January? Can they end this program in any way? I mean, because no. it's... No, and it's interesting. We're, there are certain tools that the administration has and others that Congress has. Congress controls um, the, the immigration status. To, to, call, to get a permanent status, you need an act of Congress to be able or, or claim asylum. Um, the administration was very creative in creating these pathways. It said first for Afghans, then Ukrainians, and now Venezuelans. It doesn't require congressional approval. The president and the election in 25 months will just over 24 months, will have a material impact on this, as we saw um, six years ago. Um, but um, from this perspective, it's, you know, you may, or may get more or less support from Congress in terms of adding benefits. They added benefits for um, Afghans and Ukrainians because they had pretty good bipartisan support. So there was funding for this for, to provide things like SNAP, um, health insurance, um, and professional support. Venezuelans, for example, don't have that. So they come with the same status, but without the benefits because Congress has to act and frankly, Venezuelans are too controversial. So there is a, a financial impact, but not a legal impact that it could be the case, that depends what happens in the Senate and the House, that some of the benefits that we've looked for um, may not continue. And in 24 months, we could potentially see that they could not have a pathway to status here? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's so controversial. I, I, I will go out on a limb and say, even President DeSantis or President Trump, it's hard for me to even say out loud, would not deport Ukrainian women and children 
there would be riots. There was such, you know, there's like 90% approval. There was a lot of approval for Afghans, and I thought, wow, we've got veteran group and evangelicals in ways we never saw with Syrians, but Ukrainians are off the chart. And, and, and we could be critical of that, like, okay, we know they're, they're white and they're Christian and they're women and they're children and they're sympathetic, and why aren't we doing that for other groups? And those are all valid questions, but I look at it as we have to, they're worthy of our support, so are others, but if we, if we do this right, we will, like Canada has done, as my example again, then we will set the stage for more open. It's never gonna be 100%, but we have the chance, if we do this right, to be more open. But the combination of the uncertainty around the, prog pro the progress of the war and what kind of administration we have in two and a quarter years and the state of the country, like, does the war, how does the war end? And is there anything left to go back to? Those are all relevant questions, too. I, I think one of the politicians on the Republican side said that if they take over the Senate and the House potentially, that they will stop funding or stop a lot of the funding to Ukraine. So yeah, I mean, the, the bigger numbers, honestly, like the, the refugee resettlement piece is tiny compared to the, I don't know, hundreds of billions of military aid. That is controversial but not clearly by you know, partisan. There is, in my sense, very, very strong support. In fact, if you look at the president's approval rating on various things, immigration is low, but his handling of the situation with Russia and Ukraine is actually quite high. So I, I'm not an expert in this, but I, but I personally don't believe we're, we realistically face that risk, especially since Ukraine seems to be winning, right? It's one thing if we were pouring all of this in and Russia's taking over more and more of the country, the fact is they're retreating and people realize the danger. And we, we all have this history of you know, what happened with Germany, World War II, you let them have a little bit and I think that's what people fear with Putin and we're aligned with Europe. I, I'm frankly a little more worried about Europe who is facing much more severe economic, I mean, energy prices, gas prices are up 10X. And, and it's putting a huge burden and the inflation. We think we have inflation and energy, high energy costs, it's off the chart. And so I worry a little bit more about that support as we get to month 10, month 12, and you're hearing stories about um, Germans and Italians suffering um, with no heat. That's a little bit more of a worry. But for the moment, I, I feel good about the world supporting Ukraine um, and being united against Russia. Ed and Rachie, um, this is such a fascinating topic and you both have so much information um, and interesting perspective um, and we really appreciate you coming tonight to share it. And um, for the folks here and the folks who are watching from home, um, I I'm guessing that there's gonna be a lot of interest in sponsorship um, or other ways um, people can get involved. And Rachel, I just want to confirm that it would be okay for people yes. to contact you at JCRC? Yeah, people can definitely contact me. We can have discussions about what you're up for um, and potentially create teams. Um, but yes, happy to talk to anybody about how we can get engaged in this. Okay, so uh, what I will do is I will contact the folks who registered tonight um, by email and give them your contact information. And if there's anyone at home who's watching who um, 
who didn't register by email but would like information, um, they can um, email the link that was sent out for, for tonight's program, send, send a registration uh, email, and um, I could get the information to them. And I would just um, love to hear any um, closing remarks from each of you, and I wanted to thank you again so much for taking the time. I know you're both so busy and doing such important work, so I really appreciate you um, coming tonight to, to speak to all of us. I think the one thing I'll just say is that the infrastructure that has been created um, through the Ukraine program, but also really back to the Afghan support and the Syrian support and now how that's like being leveraged to work for Venezuelans. This is never about one group of people. It's about showing up um, for the crises and the people that are on our doorstep in need of refuge. And I, it just is very powerful to be connected in our community to, to the work of the Shapiro Foundation, but also the Temple Emanuels of the world who are willing to step up in these moments to welcome people. So yeah, the one thing I would add, and, and, and Rachel, you're the expert in this, but my sense is, and, and with our own experience at Temple Beth Elohim, is that there is an opportunity for this community, obviously on a voluntary basis, to get involved. And so rather than having you know, every individual who's interested in this contact Rachie, um, to, to the extent you can do that here, that you, who, who, people who are listening tonight, but also others who weren't available, whether it's in your bulletin, like we've had this amazing outpouring of support starting six years ago, six and a half years ago with Syrians. Last week we had a Sukkot celebration where we brought all of the Syrian, Afghan, and Ukrainian families together with all of the volunteers who have involved. Some have been overlapping from one to the next to the next, and others are saying, I had, my kids were too young when the Syrians arrived, but now I wanna help. And so it, there's, a, there's an incredibly strong, from my perspective, community building opportunity that synagogues can leverage. Um, making those resources available, Rachel can provide the, the expertise and the connections and the training, but really I think important for leadership here to provide that opportunity and that platform to say, let's find a group, let's sponsor a family or two, and then in turn, Rachie and our partners, either Catholic Charities or Jewish Family Service Metro West, that is the resettlement experts, the case managers, can then answer your questions, or do you want a, you know, a family, well, maybe not like Afghans, but family of eight, or a family of two, or a single woman, or whatever that is, there are going to be all kinds of opportunities, and to the extent you can find a, be, become a platform for that and embracing it, I will say from my Temple Bethlehem experience, it's unbelievably powerful. Me. Oh, yes. Well, I, yes, I know very much of, about this family and, and have been in touch with Eliza and, and others about it. And um, yeah, it's been really powerful to see the support that um, Temple Emanuel has offered. And if there are other people who are thinking, I want to do this work, then there's no reason why there can't be more than one. And, and here's the other thing I would say, you know, while I'm interested in mobilizing as many sponsors as possible, I also recognize, and I've seen it in my own family, Sponsorship is a big commitment, and, and as much training and support and groups as you put together so that when you travel, someone's there, um, there are going to be other opportunities. And in fact, this, this pilot we're launching is actually a Newton-based company that's going to do this nationally, but they're going to start here. And, and we're, we're going to bring in, hopefully, dozens of Ukrainian teachers 
um, for Bright Horizons to do daycare. And while we're not going to slow that down by get, making sure they have sponsors, they're going to they're going to need support. They're going to need household setup. They're going to need some upfront support. And so one of the things we're trying to design is sort of a version of this to say, you may not be willing to do, or maybe you are willing to do one family, but you have others, some other temple members who are willing to help when they arrive. So it's not the full-blown sponsorship. They're coming anyway, and they have a professional case manager, but there are opportunities to volunteer and support and help in lots of ways. The reason why I brought that up is I think that, I think that Rabbi Eliza sent an email recently looking for some help. Mm -hmm. so, Great. Specifically, what what you're willing to do, and so I'm assuming that that, that she she has that and shares that with you somebody because I, I I remember I filled it out, but it was very specific about like you know spending time, helping someone find a job, using be an extra car. Um, right. She, I mean, she's being the family is being housed by a temple temple family. Was this a family that already arrived in some way? They weren't well, necessarily sponsored? Yeah, they had already arrived and actually were, um, it's a long story. Yeah, they're, they're coming in lots of different ways and they all need support. Yeah. Yeah, but it's really great that you already have leadership that's really stepped up in this way. And we can see if, if there's more or if there's ways for more people to support that family. Great. Thank you, Thank you so right. much. This was Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.